humankind is the only other creatures with any uh, intellectual capability or any soul. We will unpack that a bit later on. And in doing so, creating mankind last, which of course man, mankind proves that they are evil and rebel against God, create the Tower of Babel and the, and the flood before that, we see that mankind has a tendency towards pride. So in God's creative account, he deliberately leaves mankind to last, so it's obvious that man has no hand in creation whatsoever. Man has no hand in creation whatsoever, so that we are humbled every time we look at creation and go, how? And we see that last week when we unpacked a bit of Job 38, 39, as God questions Job and says, where were you, O man? Where were you when, you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I put out a measuring line across it? Man is created last because they are created in the image of God and they need to be reminded that they have no hand in creation but are there uh, 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 under God and subordinate to God. Secondly, mankind is created last because all of creation, the visible creation, is given to mankind to wonder about and comfort him. Mankind is created last in an existing creation in order for them to look around them and be in awe of their creator. So these are two helpful things to think about. We are created last as God's pinnacle of creation, but we are to be humble and subordinate to him, and we are created to wonder about creation and to be comforted by it. We see at the end of this passage, God gives all of creation to men to eat from, to be sustained by, to rule over, to have dominion, which we will um, My prayer is that we will see, that we, that we as a church will see the creation mandate is a gift from God that is fulfilled in the church today. The creation mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 31 was not fulfilled in Adam and Eve. It wasn't fulfilled in Israel. It is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ today and is being fulfilled as the church continues to be multiplied and to be fruitful and to expand across the nations until Christ returns and glorifies his church. So my prayer is that we as a church will know the creative mandate, creation mandate as a gift from God and that we are its fulfillment today. So let's unpack verse by verse as we do Genesis 20, uh, 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over birds of the heaven, and over livestock, and over, every, all, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I think we must always, when we see that small phrase God said, pause. And remember that it's always about what God has said. We touched on this in the creation work of days one to three, that ten times in chapter one it says God said. And it's always about what God has said, because what God has said always takes place. We see that as the creation days unfold, he says he created it, states what he created, and then it says, and it was so. We see that at the end here in verse 31. When God speaks, creation happens. When God commands, we ought to obey. 
It's not about what we think or feel. It's always about what God has said. So when we see that phrase, whether it's in Genesis or in the prophets, would we pause for a moment and meditate and think all that God has said and ponder our life and our existence and think, are we in obedience to this God who speaks and things happen? Always remember to pause at God said. And what he says here is unlike anything he has said in creation before. He's speaking to someone else. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This has been one of the most debated uh, parts of scripture. Just this little phrase here, who is he speaking to? Who's the us and the our? Now, of course, as Christians, our default position is the Trinity. God is speaking to the Son and the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God. Each person is God, but they are one. But that wasn't what the original readers would have thought. Of course, we have the revelation of the New Testament. We've been going to the New Testament to help us understand the Old Testament, particularly here in Genesis. The original readers would have thought that he was speaking to the angels. Now, why don't we believe that he's speaking to the angels? Well, most likely because they can't create. The angels do not create. The angels were ministering uh, vessels. The word angel means messenger. To do, to do the work of God, to send messages to people for the sake of their salvation. That's what Hebrews says. Angels are there to help us come to know God. However they do that, we don't know. It's a mystery. There's another uh, interesting passage that tells us that uh, be hospitable because you never know when you're entertaining an angel. They come in human likeness. They don't have wings like we think they do. <coughs> Seraphim have wings. They're in the presence of God. Angels come in human likeness and they are not able to create. They're not even able to reproduce like humans can. So what we see here, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. I think with the revelation of the New Testament and our understanding that in the beginning was the Word and Jesus and the Word was God, and the, Word, sorry, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And from Him, all things were created. John 1, 1 to 3. When we look at that, the revelation we have about Jesus Christ, we know that God is three in one. And when he is here in the beginning of Genesis 1 stating, let us make man in our image after our likeness, he is speaking forth to the truth. The commentator says, uh, God addresses himself, God addresses himself, but this he can do only because he has the Son and the Spirit who is both with him and distinct from him at the same, at the same time. He, here are the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. We know that as we unpack Genesis, and in the introduction we did on the overview of Genesis, that the whole book is pointing us to this God who is a mystery, who is unique and comes in three persons. The emphasis is on the work of the Father. The emphasis is on the waiting for the offspring, who is Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit through creation. So the, the us is God in his threefold divinity. And he states that he's going to make us, or mankind, in his image, our image. Now, 
it's interesting the phrasing here. It says in our image after our likeness. Two different words, and they are different words in the original. But it's a complex doctrine, much like the Trinity that we just spoke about. It is a mystery of sorts as to what he is actually teaching us here. What is the image and likeness of God? And it leads to some other questions, right? It leads to questions like, well, what was our nature in the beginning as the image and likeness of God? What was our nature after the fall? And what is our nature now for those who are in Christ? So we've got some complex questions to answer about who we are and, and what our meaning and purpose is as the image in the image and likeness of God. Well, let's think about how these words were originally used. One of the best ways to find a definition of a word in Scripture is to look how it's used throughout the Scriptures. Often we can grab a word from the Scriptures and put it into one of our dictionary apps or Google it and we'll get a different meaning. But we want to define it how the Scriptures define it. So how is the word image used and how is the word likeness used throughout the Scriptures? Well, the word image which is the first one he states, is translated very differently in many different ways. Ten times it refers to the various types of physical images, like pictures of men or idols. In two passages, in Psalms particularly, it likens the existence to an image or a shadow. So we've got this image, a, a picture or an idol or a statue, that's the word there, but also, this sometimes translated into the place of a shadow. And then likeness means in the scripture, according to or after the pattern of. So we have two words here that are similar, but they're actually balancing each other out. That is what the scripture is trying to do. There's not a word that can completely sum it up because we are not the exact imprint of God's nature. So we can't say we are an idol of God. Or a statue of God. We can't say we are a direct image of God. So the Hebrew writers here add likeness there to balance it out. We are in the image of God and after the likeness of God. Therefore, what we have is we are some areas of us like a shadow. We reflect him. We represent him. We portray his, some of his characteristics. Now, the heresy that people fall into is that they believe if we are God's image, therefore God is human. And we get stuck into this place or this false teaching that we are like God in every facet. That is not true. God, although who is gracious to us and describes himself as having a strong right hand and sometimes reveals himself as having a body, his spirit, he does not have form. His form is other than anything else in all of creation. At other times in the Psalms, it says we are sheltered by his wings. Does that mean God has wings? No, it's just a reference to remind us that God can shelter us and protect us. So the heresy is that we are exactly like God. The heresy is that God has a human body. But when we look at these words put together, the image of God and the likeness of God, likeness balances our image. And what we have left with is that we, although we have a human body, we have a soul. And this is distinct from every other creation that God has created. We have a soul. 
a soul or a word, the scriptures often translate it as spirit. So when we think about being having a soul, it means we can interact with God. We're the only creation that can interact personally with God. To be made in the image and likeness of God means we are able to interact spiritually with him. It means we are able to intellectually think about things. He's given us a brain to comprehend, to think through, to reason and rationalise. It means we can discern good and evil. It means we can create. It means we can show affection. Many of these characteristics only human have, humans have, and it's because we are made in the image and likeness of God. It's important for us to remember that we are not the exact imprint of God's nature. We are patterned of Him. We are, we are a shadow of Him. In ways that the rest of creation is not. That is what He's trying to get across. Humans are unique in that they are my image bearers, they are different to the rest of creation. Humans are unique in that they will do something that the rest of creation won't do. They will show me off to the world. They will be like a statue, like a statue, not an exact representation, but like a statue that will point to the rest of the world who I am. Because the very next phrase in Scripture, in this, in this verse, is let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. The very next phrase helps us understand this. When we are given the image and likeness of God, we are given a role to play, and our role to play is to have dominion. That word means to rule. And because it unpacks this a bit further on in verse 28 or 29, we're going to expand on it there. But for us to understand the image and likeness makes us realise that our image and likeness or the image and likeness of God is there for us to show him off to the world by having dominion over his creation, which declares his reign to this creation. Our likeness of God and our action of having dominion is to point to God who is reigning, is to point to him who is reigning over all things. So in our ruling over creation, which we'll unpack and understand a bit more as to what that looks like. In our actions in life, is there to say there is a God who is reigning and he is a, he is a greater ruler, he is a greater king than we are. The image and likeness of God is not to say that we are an exact representation, but that we ourselves reflect God and show him off to the world. To show him off to the world. Matthew Henry, a commentator from many centuries ago, said, Yet still between God and man there is an infinite distance. Christ is the only, Christ is only the express image of God's person as the Son of his Father having the same nature. We may be the image, we may be created in the image and the likeness of God, yet there is an infinite distance between us and God, an infinite distance. So let's think about who we are after the fall. Adam and Eve were created in the image.
image and likeness of God. They will have dominion over the creation. They were going to reflect God well. And then the fall happens. And what took place in the fall is that we failed to bear God's image to creation. The greatest sin that anyone has ever committed is they did not keep God as God. They did not glorify God as God. And every other sin is a ripple effect from that. You want to fix alcoholism, addiction, masturbation, pornography, adultery? Make God your God. Worship Him. Be satisfied in Him. And the ripple effect will start to be cleaned up. So what we see in the fall is that we create, we turn from reflecting the image of God and we start to represent ourselves. In Genesis 9 and 6, it reminds us very clearly that we are still created in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis 9 and 6, it says, whoever murders someone or sheds a man's blood, he will be killed himself for he has shed the blood of the image of God. Right? So in, after the fall, after the flood, Man is still seen as God's representatives, but they are a broken, uh, broken, fractured, marred mirror of God. We see this promise continue throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Abraham is meant to be fruitful and multiply to represent God through Israel. Israel is meant to be the nation that points other nations to God, but they fail. And finally, we see very clearly in the prophets a calling back a calling back to this image bearer to be a reflection of God, to represent God to the world. And Jeremiah says that God made the whole house of Israel cling to him, that they would be for him a name, a praise, a glory. And we finally see the redemption of the human image in Jesus. We finally see the redemption of God's image in humans in Jesus. When Jesus comes as the exact imprint of God's nature. When Jesus comes with the fullness of God dwelling in him. When Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God. We see Jesus as this offspring, the offspring we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15, who will be the exact image of God, who will be faithful in bearing God's image in which Adam was not and Israel was not. And in Jesus, the exact image of God, the exact perfect representation of his nature, nature dies in order that we may be able to do the same. He wears the punishment for us, and in Ephesians 4.24, it says, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Ephesians 4, it's speaking to the church, and it's reminding us, your image, your, your purpose, your meaning in life is still to bear the image of God to the world, to show off the likeness of God to the world, to be righteous and holy, and you now can be that in Christ Jesus, who was the invisible representation, the invisible representation of God. Church, we are God's representatives in this world today. We're not only God's representatives in this world today, we are the people of God who can live for his image and likeness. 
We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have the power of Christ in us, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. So as we look and unpack Genesis 1, we see we are fulfilling this today. Genesis 1, where it says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the efficiency of the creation. It is for us to live this out. It is for the church to be the image of God in this broken and hurting world. It is for us to be the image of God in this world to point them back to what they were created for. You can live for all other reasons and never find fulfillment until you live for what you're created to be. The image and likeness of God. Well, that brings us to verse 27. Forgot how much I love summer in here. <laughs> verse 27 is the fulfillment of God's word. When God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, this happens. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. When God speaks, things happen. When God said, I'll create in my image, it's when it went forth, it happens. And he writes a little poem here, a little poem of exactly what happened. He repeats what he says before. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. It's a pattern of a Hebrew poem. And then he states, male and female, he created them. So the creative mandate of God is that male and female will represent his image and his likeness. Masculinity and femininity are both beautiful and should be on display in Christian marriages and in the church for all to see. Neither one of them is better than the other. They both complement each other. We're going to unpack this further over the next month, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want us to be prepared for what we are going to be teaching from these scriptures. Both male and female bear the image of God. They are equal before him. Yet they are different. They are very different. Look around you. If you know someone of the opposite sex, which you really should, you will realise they are different. We have different builds, we have different strengths, and we have different weaknesses, and they function differently so that they complement each other in different roles. That is the biblical mandate, the creation mandate. So what God wanted to design, what God decided to create in male and female, is that in the coming together of male and female, there will be a completion and a fullness of this image and likeness of God. We see this confirmed by Jesus in Mark 10 as he defends marriage. We see this confirmed by Paul in 1 Timothy 2 as he defends the different roles of men and women. I want to prepare you. Over the coming weeks, we're going to push hard against culture. We're going to push hard against cultural mandates. We're going to push hard against these things, and we're not going to apologise for teaching the Word of God. The Word of God calls all culture throughout all centuries, throughout all millennium, to bow down to His work and to submit to His design and His creation mandate. God's creation mandate is a created mandate from an unchanging God, therefore it has not changed over the centuries that have gone by. 
in saying that we will speak very clearly and directly about how God created male and female marriage and sex, but I am also 100% happy to have one-to-one -one conversation with people. Not everything can be said from the pulpit. It's an opportunity to teach what the Word has said, but we are happy to discuss us as elders if you disagree on our positions that the Scriptures have. But our position is very clear, that God created male and female, two different genders. He created male and female, both equal before God, yet they are created different with different roles in order to complement one another and bear the image and likeness of God, God to the world. And then he said in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is our commission. As image bearers and people uh, who are made in the likeness of God, we have a commission to go forth and do something. Now, the first word we see, God bless them, we also need to define. To be blessed is to be drawn closer to God. We use that word, and you know, you've heard me go on a rant about it before, uh, but we use that word for all sorts of things that do not draw us closer to God. But the actual meaning of to be blessed is to be happy in the one who blessed you, or to be happy in the one who draws you closer to a deeper satisfaction in God. So when you say, I'm blessed, did that blessing lead you to God or away from Him? Away from Him? Because if it led you away, you aren't blessed. If it led you to Him, then you're blessed. So in the blessing that God gives, what will draw us closer to God, what will help us fulfill and glorify Him, uh, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, of course, this is speaking about sex. Sex is a gift from God. There are two ways that we view sex that is very unhelpful. One is that it's God and we worship it. We serve it in every aspect of our life. And the second is that it's gross. Both run biblically and both are not part of what God designed. God created sex as a gift for male and females in the covenant of marriage. We see this very clearly in chapter 2. When Adam has no helper, Eve is created from his rib. God presents Eve to him and he sings a song and it's a, a song of bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it's a promise, a covenantal promise to say we are married. We are one. Sex is to happen within the confines of a covenant agreement of marriage, which is lifelong. We see that very clearly in Scripture. Any view of sex outside of marriage, whether individually or any practice of sex or sexual activity outside of marriage, whether individually or with someone else, is sexual immorality and sin. And it has grave consequences. We should see very clearly in Scripture that the consequences of sexual sin is greater than other sins. Paul says sexual sin is a sin outside, uh, inside the body where other sins are a sin uh, outside the body. We should be aware that sexual sin has grave consequences because it goes against the very design that God had in order to bless us. Sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman in a covenant agreement of marriage forever is what will bring glory to God and help us fulfill the commission that he gave us. So what is the commission that he gave us? The commission that he gave us was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have children, right? 
The first commission that God gave us was to bring forth more image bearers for himself. And we have to be careful not to see this as any other means. It is to bring forth more image bearers for God, not for yourself, for God. Adam, in chapter 5 of Genesis, brings forth image bearers of himself. It says Adam had a son in his own, in his own likeness that he named himself. We need to be very careful in our understanding of what it means to raise children. To raise children is not to raise them as successful uh, people in this world. To raise children does not mean to bring forth little images of yourself that make you feel good because you've raised a, su a successful doctor or a successful lawyer or a successful sports star. To raise children is to disciple them. To raise image bearers of God, to raise up representatives of Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to bring forth. When it says that God bless them, be fruitful and multiply, we have to read it in context. What is the context here? The context here is he's just created man and woman in his image. So when we are to be fruitful and multiply, the creation mandate is fill the world with representatives of God. And that takes place in discipleship. What we see in the new creation, sorry, the recreation, being born again in Jesus Christ, is that this commission goes forth to the church. All the way through the scriptures, this is being handed down. Adam and Eve have it first. Then, of course, it's Noah. Then we see Abraham and Israel to be fruitful and multiply. Still the same commission. Now it's to the church. And Jesus says, just before he goes into heaven, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What we must see is that the Great Commission is pointing us back to Genesis 1. The Great Commission is very clearly pointing us back to be fruitful and multiply. But now, church, be fruitful and multiply in the evangelization of the nation. Be fruitful and multiply by preaching forth the gospel and discipling them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So it's twofold. Raise children and disciple them in the faith. But even more, go forth and make disciples. It's not enough just to raise children and disciple them in the faith. We've got a message that is life-changing. In Romans 10, 14, it says it's through hearing the gospel that faith is given. And we have a message that changes people's lives and brings them back to the purpose and meaning that they have, and that is to bear God's image and represent him to the world. Now, we can raise kids in the image and likeness of ourselves, or we can raise kids and disciple them in the faith and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. What we must see in Genesis 1, 28, is that the creation man's mandate to be fruitful and multiply, go forth and bear God's image, and to create more bearers of God's image, God's image, was never cancelled out. But Christ expands upon it. Not just children. Go preach it. Not just your own. But go forth to your neighbours, to your colleagues, to everyone else that is around you. To all the nations. Correct discipleship of our children is to show them what it looks like 
to live a life committed to the great commission, great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ? Will we raise up little representatives of Jesus? Will we raise up image bearers of God? Will we disciple them in all there is to know about Jesus in order that they may be so passionate, so filled with joy that they would go forth into the nations and that they may give their life not to a career but to the gospel? Maybe in their career, maybe on a mission trip. But our call to be fruitful and multiply is to be fruitful and multiply the image of God, not images of ourselves, not successful children. And then we come back to subdue and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The words we used just before, or dominion was used just before in verse 26. And we see it repeated here with the extra word of subdue. Now the same word for dominion and subdue is used for the kings of Israel. To rule, to have power over, to control. Now of course we are not little kings. We don't walk around going, I'm a king of this world, this is my land, I've got to look after it. We've got to be careful not to get the wrong idea of what is going on here. Now, many people, many people take this argument and say that this is all about environmental concern. We are here to protect animals and to look after the earth, and we're doing a poor job, so the church needs to get back into doing that. Once again, what is the context? What is the context of this passage? The context of this passage is all about the image of God. That's where it started. Let us make man in the image of God. He will have dominion. The image of God will have dominion. The likeness of God will have dominion over all of creation. God cares for the environment. God makes things grow. We see that in the book of Job, once again, 38 and 39, as he says to Job, do you even know where the mountain goats give birth? Do you know or can you feed the, the lions? Of course the answer is no. So our subduing and our caring for the environment is limited in in comparison to what God can do. When we have dominion over the fish of the seas, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing on the earth, what we are called to do is to bring forth the image of God in all of creation. Whether it's in the fish of the sea, whether it's in the birds of the air, whether it's in the, the animals in our farms, we are called to bring forth the image of God into that space. So how do we make that more specific, more practical for our life? Well, it's in the work of man or the childbearing of women. It's in our practical work through our everyday jobs, whether it's being a doctor or a teacher or a labourer or a carpenter or whatever we do for our everyday job, we do that for the image and likeness of God to be seen. To have dominion in that place. What has dominion in your workplace? What has dominion in your family? What has dominion in your neighborhood? The image of God or the image of man? The image of our culture? The slanderous accusations of, of, of no God's existence? The blaspheming that goes on? Will we as a church, as individuals, have dominion? in our workplaces and in our families and in our neighbourhoods as we take forth the image of God with the promise, the promise that the church will prevail. 
The kingdom of God is like a seed, a mustard seed that starts off small but grows into a garden plant for all the birds to live in. The gospel will prevail. The kingdom of God will win. It will not be destroyed. It will not be snuffed out. It will continue on forever and ever and it will dominate culture. You know what I have a problem with? I was on Facebook the other day. I don't have Facebook because I'm my wife. So I should never go on. I don't like it. This mission organization puts up a post. They said, we go on a mission in the uni holidays. We went to Orange. We saw 320 people come to faith. No, they didn't. If you saw 320 people come to faith, the image of God is well represented and would change that community forever. There are 1,200 apartments in this estate, roughly. Say there's one person, there's more than one person in each of them, but say there's one person that's, that's 1,200 people. If 5% came to faith, we would see a massive difference in this neighborhood. Massive difference. Why? Because the image of God is well represented and it changes culture. Would we not make slanderous claims that God moved 300 hearts and nothing happened in the neighborhood? No, no reform of justice. No changes in the church life. No more affection for the Lord. No growth in the local churches. If there is 300 people saved in the neighborhood, the image of God would go forth and everything would change. Justice would change. Jobs would change. Worship would be changed in those places. Churches would grow or start. When it says to have dominion, what is to have dominion? You? Me? No, the image of God, the glory of God, His beauty, His work, His power, His holiness has been displayed throughout all the nations, in all the neighborhoods, in all the workplaces. That is our meaning and purpose. We were created to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion so that the image of God would rule and reign and we would alert people to the reign of God over this universe. When we get to the last few verses, 29 and 30, it shows us of God's grace. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You should have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. What we see in creation is that God has shown a common grace to all of mankind. You have experienced God's common grace from the day you were born and gave your first breath. Before that, before you, even when you were conceived in your mother's womb. You have common grace in that you live. You breathe every morning and wake up. That is God's common grace to you. You have common grace because you have food. You have food that is easy to obtain, easy to collect, easy to get. He gave us food. He gave, us, he gave us breath. He gave us this creation to enjoy. Yet, church, you have received a special grace. You have received the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have received the grace that says, be alive. Be spiritually alive. Be born again. Be recreated. Now live for my image in a new way, in a fullness, with the power of the Holy Spirit in you. 
The beauty is, church, that we have received the special grace of God. The special grace to bear his image to this world. The special grace to be his bride, his people for his own possession. The special grace that will leave us with him for all eternity, forever and ever, in glory. And at the end of creation, God said it was very good. This word very good is the first time we see it. It's the completion of creation. It means pleasant or splendid to the eye. With the word very or really. This remind us that when God creates, when God has a plan, all things work well together. God's plan from the beginning was Revelation 22. God's plan from the beginning was the new Jerusalem. His bride, his church, his redeemed people for himself. And his plan from the beginning was that we would go forth and illuminate his name, make his name known, take his name to our take his name to the world. Would we with heaven on our minds, with the new Jerusalem in our hearts, with the people that we will be with, go forth into this world and multiply through the evangelization, through the preaching of the gospel in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, in our neighborhood? Would we fight for justice, care for the environment with the primary aim to make disciples which comes from the preaching of the gospel? With the primary aim to make disciples which comes from the preaching of the gospel, whether it's through your ch- to your children, to your neighbors, to your work colleagues, it must be preached. The gospel must be preached. And that is when we'll be filling our purpose and meaning for life, be fruitful and multiply the image of God for all nations. Let's pray.
Father, we need your help. This is your work and not ours. With your Holy Spirit descend upon the church and awaken us to move with boldness, to go forth and know that the kingdom of God will prevail. The church will be built, it will be established, and it will stand forever and ever with you, Lord, our God and Savior. We give you great praise in Jesus' name. Amen.